what's your most memorable Boston Marathon? Okay, so um, yeah, it's yeah. I, I guess it has to be 2018. Now people go 2018. Why 2018? It rained so hard that day, and it was you know Desi won um, the women's race, and Yuki from Japan won the the men's race. Uh, you know, Yuki was just you know I call him an everyday runner, but he's a He's run more sub 220 marathons than anyone else in the world. Um, but he wasn't picked to be a winner that day. He's just gutted it out. And, you know, it, it was cold. It was 35 degrees and it was raining. Something to the effect, um, if you remember the movie Caddyshack, where Bill Murray's out on the course with the bishop and it's just deluging. And we're at the starting line and it's just coming down. You know, I have never been that wet before a race ever in my life and I've never been rained on that much in my life ever uh, I mean even in some of these um, you know out on Winnipesaukee you end up with these heat storms in the summer where the skies explode and you know you get two inches of water in 10 minutes that was like for all 26 miles Hello, podcast listener. If this is your first time here, welcome to the Eat Half Walk Double podcast coming to you from the Ascend Endurance Coaching Studios here in beautiful Stratford, New Hampshire, US of A. I'm your host, Chris Dunn. If you follow the show, thank you very much. And also welcome back. So this show chronicles my four decades in endurance sports as an exercise physiologist, coach, race director, and athlete told through the stories of the important, influential, and interesting people I've met along the way. While I catch up with friends, colleagues, rivals, clients, and the occasional family member, it's my hope you'll learn a little something about health, fitness, and the secrets to living well along the way. Scott Graham is my guest this week. For runners, the most famous stretch of road in all the world is the 26.2 miles from Hopkinton to Boston, Massachusetts. Landmarks such as the Ashland Clock Tower, the Framingham train station, the screaming co-eds at Wellesley College, the Forever Young statue in Newton, Heartbreak Hill, Coolidge Corner, the Sitco sign, and of course, Copley Square give the route a unique character. And after running 36 consecutive Boston marathons, with number 37 coming up this April, one character, Scott Graham, knows this route better than anyone I know. He shares some of his most memorable Patriots Day experiences, as well as some valuable pearls of wisdom for anyone racing the event for the first time. Well, here he is, Scott Graham. Scott, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me here. It's good to see you, my friend. How are you doing? Good, good. I mean, I don't think I've seen you in a couple of years now. It's a uh, pandemic and everything else and life in general just... Uh... Our paths haven't crossed. No, they they haven't. In fact, I was uh, I was trying to figure out the last time that we that we did uh, see each other in person, and I believe uh, I actually have the event that you and I both appeared at. So let me set it up this way: um, <clears throat> not since Led Zeppelin appeared on stage at London's O2 Arena in 2007 has there been a more celebrated reunion 
then the Moose Mountain Runaround in Wolfboro, uh, New Hampshire, in January of 2019. Uh, our mutual friend Dan Coons uh, uh, hosted a snowshoe race there at Moose Mountain for a handful of years. Do, and I'm and I'm wondering if you remember that day. It was uh, there was at least in the photo that my my wife Karen took. Um, uh, you, myself, Haley Heinrich, Marcy Schwamm, Richie Blake, Richie, Diane yeah, LeBeck, Brian Gallagher. I think, I, saw I, think that recently. I think Jeff Litchfield, uh, yeah, was yeah. there as well. Um, and that, you know, 2019 was probably, oh, geez, three or four years, uh, since, uh, since the Granite State Snowshoe Series had kind of disbanded and, and uh, so, I mean, I hadn't raced on snowshoes in a, in a few years. Do you do you remember that day? Oh, I absolutely do. It kind of wrapped around the ski area there, and uh, all through the things. In fact, I remember who was it? Um, he was the coach of NHTI uh, cross country. Yeah, uh, Tom Walton. Tom Walton. He was in front of me and went off course. <laughs> I remember screaming him to get back on course, and then he proceeded to beat me that day. <laughs> Well, that, and, and that's a that's a wonderful illustration, really, um, uh, of well, of, of snowshoe racing uh, in, in particular, but but generally of, of trail racing and mountain racing. Yeah. Um, there's always this friendly esprit de corps. Right. In other words, um, you notice somebody gets off course, uh, particularly someone that's ahead of you. Now, it would be of course, it would be to your advantage not to say anything and let them get way off course. But, but you don't do that. But you don't but you don't do that. Um, uh, uh, now, that that may or may not be the case uh, in other forms of running or racing. But uh, generally, um, generally, that snowshoe racing. I don't know. My recollection was that um, uh, it hurt uh, nearly as much as I remember it hurting uh, years before when we were racing regularly on the snowshoe circuit. Uh, it was pretty cold that day too. I recall it, it, it was, um, uh, fun though, fun to have, uh, you know, a, a, to be able to sort of, uh, to kind of, you know, relive those, uh, the, the, the heyday, so to speak of, of New Hampshire snowshoe racing. Oh yeah. We, um, we had a lot of fun racing in snowshoes. That's we, we did. And, and I, I want to talk a little bit more about that in just a moment, but, um, Scott, for the listener that doesn't know Scott Graham, why don't you introduce yourself? Well, um, you know, the way I usually like to put it is I'm a husband, father, uh, grandfather now, uh, runner and multi-sport endurance athlete. Um, that's and I, and I put it that way because I think it's more important. You know, the running is a side thing for me. It, it isn't my life. I, I, I try not to make it my life, but, uh, you know, the families, I always tell my people who work for me family first. Um, and, and I believe that truly because at some point in time, I'm not going to be running. <laughs> if I neglect the family, <laughs> I'm going to be all alone. So, you know, it is family first. And, you know, over the years I've looked at it and said, you know, every runner can do what I, every person can do what I do. They just need a real good support system. And part of that is your family buying into it. Yeah, I think I mean it's a really good point, um, and of course we'll um, we'll we'll talk about uh, your your athletic uh, history uh, and uh, specifically the uh, the streak that you have uh, going on. And I think as part of that discussion, obviously it'll it'll become clear that um, 
you know, for you to have done what you've done and continue to do, um, it, it just, it just, it wouldn't be possible without the support system uh, that you have. Um, and, and of course your, 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 your family is, is central to that. Um, let, well, let's, um, before we get into that, let's, let's talk, cause it's kind of fun for me to, to, uh, um, as I, you know, as I reconnect, uh, with the, uh, you know, the, the important people, uh, and the interesting people and the influential people that I've met over the years, it's fun for me to, uh, uh, to, to, to think back to how, you know, sort of it, to how we we came to know each other, um, and I'm 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 gonna I'm gonna guess, although you'll you'll correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm gonna guess that um, that you and I came to know each other uh, through what we were just talking about a moment ago, which is uh, which is which is snowshoe racing. Um, is that is that your recollection, Scott, of how you and I came to know each other? You, you know, I had to go back and look through. Uh... <laughs> Facebook memories and stuff, but I believe it was, I believe it was a uh, cobble mountain race. It was the first time you would put it on. I think it was 2008, 2009 timeframe. Yep. And um, I was, I had a place over in Guilford at that point in time, which is right next, right next to Gunstock mountain pretty much. And um, you know, Dave Dunham, who's a friend of mine suggested that I go and run this race. Okay. Well, you know, snow, I had some snowshoes for, clomping around in the in the snow and stuff i thought it'd be neat so i got showed up with a pair of uh my tubs uh snowshoes and i did a warm-up run with dave and you know we we chatted a bit and i'm just wondering what's going to happen and the gun goes off and you know all of a sudden my heart rate goes from zero to 300 in seconds and i'm dying i finish great and I got black and blue marks all over my ankles. <laughs> and I'm looking at everyone else, including you. You you know, everyone's got these, you know, flashy Dion's on that are a lot smaller than I had. But, um, you know, it's funny because just the whole environment at the snowshoe race was so much more open and, you know, just different than a road race. Um, people you met, like, who was it? Um, I think her name was um short tail what was her first name lauren i don't know she was she was a good emily trespass and there was bill morris and all these people were just oh yeah great to have you here you know let's have some fun and you know that that's the way it was and i think the race cost me 15 dollars back then which even back then that was considered very inexpensive and you you did that you really kept the prices way down compared to road races so, yeah, well, of course, fun. of course, in those in those early years and and um, you're yeah, the, the, the race that you're referring to, the Cobble Mountain Snowshoe Classic, I think I called it, uh, was at Gunstock Mountain Resort. And it was uh, the course that I had laid out was a combination of um, Nordic trails, uh, right. the Nordic around, ski trails around the Cobble Mountain. Yeah, around Cobble Mountain, which is this um, this sort of this lower peak, it's a secondary peak right. uh, that happens to be sort of smack dab in the middle of the Nordic network. Um, and, and which was just adjacent to the Alpine ski area. Right. I mean, this, it wasn't a ski mountain. It literally just, it was a, it was a hill in the middle of the Nordic network that actually happened to have a snowshoe trail that tracked to the top of this cobble mountain and back down the other side. So of course I thought it would be fun. Um, and 
as you recall, generally speaking, um, acidotic racing events um, always had to have some little challenging twist to them. I, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of, uh, I, I thought that was an important uh, aspect of, uh, of, of program or, or of, of course design. Um, so combination of the groomed, nice groomed Nordic trails, and then this really nasty, you know, snowshoe single track ascent and descent. No, no, the, that was. The... I think I fell three times coming down that mountain. <laughs> <laughs> you fell four times because I actually, I, <laughs> because I went back and and read your blog and, uh, well, maybe maybe you fell three times the first year. You fell four times the second year because you. You you actually mentioned it uh, in your blog in year two. So um, so as uh, as as much as that first year kind of beat you up a little bit, um, either you were not smart enough or you were determined enough that you came back the next year, um, maybe with a little bit different equipment. I'm guessing you probably had Dion's that oh, second, had time Dion's the second year. In fact, I bought Dion's right after that first <laughs> attempt. This is okay. We're not going to do this again. Uh, and you actually very, very generously uh, and graciously uh, helped me that second year. Oh, that's um, right. A, I was helped you carry the podiums out. I helped you set up the course and yeah, yeah. I remember that. Yeah. Well, well, and, and again, thanks to your blog, cause I, I hadn't, <clears throat> I wouldn't have remembered this, but uh, apparently I had 10 cases of red hook beer that I gave away that year. Um, Cause you mentioned that in, in your blog. And then, and then of course you, um, you helped me set up the last couple hundred meters of the course which would end up being beneficial to you uh, once the race started, because you you knew the last couple hundred meters of the course, uh, and right, and kind of knew when you had to turn it on. Um, uh, so yeah, such uh, such good times. And you, I mean, you mentioned the lower entry fee. Of course, um, you know, a, a big part of that was because snowshoe racing was somewhat in its infancy uh, at that point here uh, in New Hampshire. Not. Not necessarily in New England because, uh, you know, the Western Mass Athletic Club had been hosting snowshoe races out in Western Mass for many, many years before we got into the sport. But but in New Hampshire, it was a it was a relatively new thing. Um, and, be, and because it was so ridiculous. Right. You put you put snowshoes on your feet and you run around um, <laughs> the, the entry fee. You know, there was enough there was enough barrier to entry just because of it was so ridiculous that the entry fee didn't need to be another obstacle for people to overcome. That's why yeah, we, right. we, we, we kept the, uh, the entry fee low. Um, do you, so you, you, you mentioned Dave Dunham and, and, and Bill Morris and Emily Trespass. Did you, um, uh, do you remember recognizing anybody else from other types of racing when you showed up to that snowshoe race or, or truly Scott, was it, was it an, was it an entirely different and new community to you? Um, no, there was a bunch of people I recognized from the running community. Uh, you know, Dan Varrington would show up to races and, um, you know, Jeff Litchfield, like you, you were discussing before. I mean, there was a lot of people that I had, you know, run against or had met over the years. And, you know, it, it really, snow race, snowshoe racing I look at was, you know, another neat thing you could do in the winter for running. Okay. It wasn't something someone said. I think I'm going to start running and I'll start with snowshoe racing. That really <laughs> wasn't the, the path people took. It's true. It's true. Um, and I don't know about you, but um, when I was racing quite a bit on snowshoes, I mean, generally speaking, winter is about 13 weeks long, right? And so basically right. it's 13 weekends potentially um, uh, during the winter time. For me, 
when I was racing frequently <clears throat> on snowshoes, it always seemed to me like the winter went by pretty quickly. Was that, was that your oh, yeah. experience yeah. as well? Well, it was, you know, there was five, six races. So you're racing, you know, you know, in your series, you're racing every other weekend. So it was all tight and you were praying for snow at times or no, we were shoveling yeah. snow onto the course. It's, 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 it's a really good point. Um, of course, as, you know, as, as runners, particularly as, as road runners, um, New England winters can be somewhat of a challenge in terms of road conditions. And, um, and it, it's often that um, quality of outdoor running begins to suffer a little bit for road runners. Um, but snowshoe racing was, you know, it was that, uh, uh, it was that opportunity to embrace the difficulty and challenges of, of New England winters. Um, um, you know, because aside from having not enough snow, um, uh, you know, there, the challenge was there. Right. Oh, yeah. And, uh, and it, again, to me, to me, the combination of the, of the community of people, uh, and the, uh, the number of races, it just, it seemed like, like, like winter was much more pleasurable and tolerable. Oh yeah. Uh, well, again, it's something to look forward to, too. And, you know, most of the races you put on all had the, the name, the word mountain in them. So <laughs> at some point you were running up a mountain. <laughs> so there was that challenge. It's true. It's true. Even, even, it, even in the most bizarre one, which feel good farm. I don't know if you remember that one. <laughs> I do. That was actually a, that was a that was that, that was a Michael Amarello production. Okay. I, I, I'm not going to take uh, the the blame or credit for that. That was that was Michael's race. Yeah, we um, uh, feel good farm in was it Moultonboro? No, uh, no, that was no, uh, not not Moultonboro. Um, uh, Lindenboro. No. Okay, yeah. Is that right? I don't. Anyway, even know. It, I don't even remember. It was it was. It didn't have a lot of snow, so there was a lot of broken cleats that day. <laughs> and well, that's also the race that um, it, I mean, it literally uh, Michael had the course wind through this farm, and uh, in the areas that we were racing, there was there was actually some farm junk, um, right? That typically would have been covered in snow, uh, wasn't covered in snow. So you really had to pay attention to what you were doing because the last thing you wanted to do was fall on a piece of, of rusty, sharp farm junk that that happened to be littering the course all all super super fun memories um for sure um well i um you referenced it uh, a, a little bit um but let's talk a little bit more about about your athletic um uh background and and um uh, and um uh, you know, what that looked like growing up how you got into running um because i want to i I, I want to get to uh, this really interesting uh, fact and, and something that I want to explore a little bit more. But um, this year, this April, you will run in your 37th consecutive Boston Marathon. That's correct. Yep. Now, now, for the listener, let that sort of let that sink in for a moment. I'll say it again. This April um you will you will race your 37th consecutive boston marathon um an extraordinary streak um that uh, i'm sure there are any number of really interesting and funny stories associated with that and we'll get into that 
Um, but, but, uh, but, but take us up to, uh, take us up to the start, uh, uh, of your, of your, your running passion. Um, what, what was sports like for you as a kid? Okay. So I grew up in a family of five. Um, I was the oldest, um, my dad, you know, in his prime was, you know, baseball, basketball, football guy, captain of the team of everything. Um, I was tiny, you know, uh, up until my junior year, I was five feet tall and 94 pounds soaking wet. Which is kind of funny because I, I remember you, uh, I, I know you as being what, six foot, six, one, six, two. One, yes. Yes. Yeah. Six, one. So yeah, you, you grew quite a bit. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, growing up, I never thought I'd be a runner. That wasn't part of the thing. You know, dad was baseball, basketball, football. I loved baseball and hockey. You know, I grew up in the days of Bobby Orr and Kali Yastrzemski and Phil Esposito. I mean, so hockey was my passion, actually. Um, but I wasn't particularly fast and I was pretty small. So going into the corner with a big guy, you know, was, wasn't working real well for me. I was getting my you know, butt handed to me constantly in hockey. And, you know, by the time I, you know, hit freshman in high school, when you start trying out for the high school teams, I wasn't, I wasn't the guy who's going to make that team. There there was no way I was too small. Um, Like I said, I was 94 pounds and five feet tall my junior year. Um, My, uh, but then um, let's see, actually, I probably would have gone out for running, my sophomore year, because I did realize uh, my freshman year, I'll, I'll back up just a little bit. My freshman year, there was a walkathon in town and, you know, raise money. And I don't remember what it was for, but it was 25 miles long. Guess who finished first in that walkathon? <laughs> Me, because <laughs> I ran most of it. And it just, you know, it was what I did, you know, running. And how did I get to that running point? Well, it's funny because a friend of mine, uh, Michael Boucher, um, him and I used to play hockey together and his dad during the summer would take us out for a 1.5 mile loop of the neighborhood after he finishes 10 mile run. Uh, this guy, Rod Boucher was a big runner in town and, uh, you know, me and Mike would go out there and we'd run around the block with him and, you know, mile and a half, we'd get in shape for hockey. So we we're fast and had the endurance and we have the endurance. We just, neither one of us were particularly fast, <laughs> but anyways, so come my, um, Junior year, I decided cross country sounds like a lot of fun. Let's give it a try. You know, and I was the new guy on the team because everyone else had been on the team for two, two plus years already. Um, so, you know, I was JV and that was fine. And, you know, I got my op- big opportunity to run varsity towards the end of the season and I screwed up. I tried going out with the fast guys and you know how that happens. <laughs> you think you got it and all of a sudden it all falls apart fast and the world gets real woozy on you. So uh, mm-hmm. that was my start of running. And then I, you know, ran winter and spring track. We had a, my coach back then, Jim Dirk, and he was also a marathoner. Oh, my friend's um, father, uh, Rod Boucher, he was a marathoner too at Run Boston. So, you know, <laughs> it piqued my interest early on uh, as to what this Boston marathon was all about. And, um, you know, my father would take us down to the course in Newton every now and then over the years. So I got to see it firsthand. So. It was, uh, you know, interesting, but I really enjoyed the running part, you know, up through my senior year in high school. Great. 
College, though, I realized, once again, I'm not material to run at that level. You know, you, you always hit these things in your life where you go, okay, I've reached my plateau. That, that That's it. So college, I didn't do a thing, really. And uh, where where did where did you go to college, Scott? I went to UMass Lowell. Okay. Or, or whatever they're calling it these days, Lowell Tech. I mean, when I first started, it was Lowell Tech, Lowell State. It was actually two different colleges. So, I, uh, you know, I graduated from uh, U Lowell when the mascot was the Indians, or the Chiefs, rather. Okay. <laughs> We don't that was a that long time ago. A long time ago, but it was it was good. And um, you know, I a year or so after I graduated, uh, my wife had already my my girlfriend at the time graduated, and uh, I decided right when we get married, I needed a hobby, and my buddy and I decided to start running together because it was something we did early on in our lives, and uh, just started entering five Ks, and you know, our nice. No, not five Ks, five milers. Five Ks didn't exist back then. Mm. You know, you had a, if you ran the five K, that was the JV race back then. And uh, it was five milers or, you know, or higher. And that, that, that's all that existed. It was a lot of fun. And most of them were sponsored by pubs in the area. So <laughs> whatever. Right. Not, yeah. Not, not, not a bad thing at all. Right. Um, uh, so there was a, tell me about this, uh, this, this, Fourth of July race in uh, in 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 Chelmsford. What what's the significance of that race? Okay, so Chelmsford always had this Fourth of July race, and uh, to many of the people out of um, you know Chelmsford in that area know it quite well as the John Carson Fourth of July race. Um, back then, it was usually just a bunch of local runners. You know, this is back in '85 or so. Um, bunch of local runners, and maybe um, the high sc- high school studs would run it. You know, and they get 200 plus runners. So here I am. It's a point to point race from one part of town to the other uh, along the parade route. So you had lots of people out there getting ready for the parade. In fact, Chumsford is notorious for people setting up their chairs for the parade one week in advance. So and they chain them to, you know, telephone poles. It's pretty funny, but they have to get their spot. So, anyways, I get in this race and um, go out like, lightning and uh i did pretty well i think i finished fifth that day and i got back to my wife after the race and um she's standing there with this guy and she introduces me to him i think his name was kevin crispel and um he introduced himself as part of the greater lowell roadrunners and uh wanted to wanted to know you know geez dude i belong to a club you know because they were always out on the prowl to find new talent and stuff and I didn't and didn't think I really wanted to belong to a club at that point in time. And uh, he talked about it and said, tell you what, why don't you show up to this grab bag race at the uh, uh, this little, little pub they had in Lowell and, you know, just meet the people and see what if you like the group or not. So I showed up and sure enough, I had a ball at the race. I mean, I, I didn't do particularly well, probably, you know, in the top 20 or so because I was running against a lot of you know, what I call real runners at that point. And then, uh, you know, once again, it was at a pub. So they, they convinced me over a few cold beverages that it was a good idea to join the club. And, uh, you know, it was, a, you know, I, I look at it back and say, Greater Lowell taught me an awful lot about running. It, it isn't just about, you know, running the race. It's about how to train, how to, how to rest, how to have fun. <laughs> I mean, you know, if you're not having fun, you're not going to do it long. And that, that, 
they, they taught me how to really have fun with the running. And uh, you know, I really look back saying that was probably one of the, my best decisions ever joining them as a, as a runner. Cause I wouldn't mm. be where I am today if I hadn't done that. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned that, um, you know, it was, it was the, 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 the greater uh, Lowell road runners <clears throat> that really sort of really elevated you as, as a runner really sort of helped you to become more focused, uh, more serious, more invested in the sport of running. Um, and you also had some, you, you had some mentors along the way, uh, as part of that, as part of that club. Do any, do any names come to mind, Scott, when you think about the, the important people in that club that really helped to shape you as a runner? Sure. I mean, the, one of the guys who was, um, he was head of the racing team for years, uh, Dave Kamir was, uh, you know, pretty instrumental. He was one of the founders of the club. Um, and he, he was like the ringleader to get people out on long runs and stuff. Dave, Dave, Dave was a very good runner in his prime. He, uh, he also started the Wang running club, uh, when Wang was big. And in fact, they, um, their first buses to the marathon were a combination, greater little road runners, Wang team. So they, you know, they get two, three buses, uh, they would meet down at the Wang towers there in Lowell. Um, you know, other people like Will Mason, um, who's departed at this point, and um, he was an amazing athlete, Will. Uh, he was still running, you know, better than 250 at 60 years old in a marathon. So he was he was an amazing runner. Uh, Colin Goulson, Tom Amiro, Tom Carroll, uh, you know, Stata Mahaldo. Um, and there were women runners, uh, Lisa Senatori. Um, you know, Cara Haas, Cara's younger than me, but <laughs> she, she is, uh, something else without a doubt. And I know, you know, Cara well, um, but you know, there was just a lot of people there who could take me under their wing and teach me all, all these guys were, um, older than I was, but, uh, they, they were great people, great mentors to have. And, you know, to tell you how good they were, uh, there was one year where, uh, Greater Lowell Masters team won the Masters division in the Boston Marathon. Wow. They also won the Open division. <laughs> wow. <laughs> they were insane how fast they were. Wow. Wow. Um, yeah. And I, and you know, that your, your experience with, uh, with the uh, Greater Lowell Roadrunners, um, you know, I, I think is an excellent illustration of, um, of, of the benefit of a local running club. And, uh, and, and more importantly, more, more importantly than the club, the, the local running community, um, right. you know, to not only to have the chance to, um, you know, to, to go on group runs and to, and to share that experience together, um, but also as, as, you know, as an opportunity to learn and, and to grow as a, as a, as an athlete within that sport, um, you know, you know, be, as a result of the mentors, um, you know, in, in that particular club. So, um, so I, I mentioned earlier that, um, you've run the Boston marathon for 36 consecutive years. Once again, this April will be your 37th. So what's, so, so what's the story of, of, of how you came to run your first Boston marathon? I mean, so you, you know, you, you talked about, local four milers and, and five milers. And, and I'm sure there was this progression, uh, you know, in distance. Um, but what, uh, so, how did you come to run your first Boston marathon? It's, it's, you know, I look at it as a funny story because it, it wasn't the greater little road runners. <laughs> um, 
I was working at a company named MassComp in Westford, Mass at the time, a uh, high tech. Uh, they were one of the original Unix uh, companies, you know, developing the operating system and stuff. And I, they had put in a, um, a small workout room and a group of us used to get together and run all the time. And there was this one gentleman, Mike Chisholm. Mike was a, well, well he was a lineman for U Lowell at one point in time. So he's big build guy, you know, we used to jokingly say he ran like a cement mixer, right? <laughs> he put it in cement mixer mode and he wouldn't stop. He was just tough as nails. Absolutely. And one of the nicest guys you ever meet. And um, one run he was talking about running the, that he had run the Boston marathon. And I'm looking at him going, get out of here. You know, you ran the Boston, you know, you know, I was in disbelief, but you know, sure enough, he had, and, um, he had a, a connection and uh, was able to get me entered. Great. And I was in pretty good shape back then. I, you know, I weighed nothing. I, I had bloomed up to six foot one and I was now 160 pounds of muscle and there wasn't any fat on me. Um, and great. This sounds like a, a good idea. We could do this. And he, he also connected me with a, um, the winner's circle at that point in time had a bus. And they would stop in Lowell to pick up a group of us. Um, and this group was, you know, Mike, um, another guy, Steve Doyle and Billy Florence and uh, Rick McCarthy, um, who were all football players, but were all tough as nails. And uh, they went a circuit brought us into Boston or into Hopkinton and basically parked at the common. You know, here we are in this nice luxury bus and most of the other runners Back then, you know, they were stuck up in the gym at the high school or just sitting around the common on the wet grass. So we're in this luxury bus. And this is what teams did back then. They, they'd be able to park right there. No big deal. You know, nobody bothered you. And it was all, it was all good. There was probably 7,000 or so people there. So uh, that's how I got into it. I mean, it, it, somebody that I would never expect could run a marathon taught me that I could run a marathon. <laughs> And more importantly, got you a bib. Yeah, right. Yeah, you got got me my first bib in. <laughs> so, so anyone that's familiar with the with the Boston Marathon um, course uh, uh, knows that the first ten k or so are downhill. Um, and um, for for first time Boston marathoners, um, it's it's not hard to get caught up in the excitement of the Boston marathon, couple that with the fact that it's downhill for the first 10 K and more than a few first time Boston marathoners have got themselves in a bind, um, <laughs> after the first 10 the first 10 K, um, of maybe having gone out a little too hard because the race, be the race sort of, sort of from that point on progressively gets more difficult. What, what was your race experience, Scott, at that, at that first Boston marathon? I ran a 10 K a fast 10 K as a matter of fact. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, going into that race, I didn't do any marathon specific training. I didn't know anything about the marathon other than it was long ways. And, you know, I went out like it was a 10 K. And I probably ran, I, I don't have my notes on this, but I probably ran a 34 to 35 minute first 10K. 
it's downhill, right? It's, what, what's so hard about this? I'm saying to myself, what's so hard about this race? You know, I knew about the hills, at least what they talked about back then was, uh, you know, it didn't start to mile 17 and a half when you take the corner at the fire station. Um, I hit mile 16 and I was a mess already. And, you know, you come down that steep hill in uh, Wellesley down to what we used to call the Grossman Hill. Because there used to be a Grossman's hardware store at the bottom of that thing. And it's a real steep downhill. In fact, it's one of the steeper downhills in the course. And if you let yourself fly down there, you're going to destroy your, your, your legs coming down there because the pounding is vicious. And nobody talks about that little hill starting in mile 16 that goes up over the highway, um, up over Route 128. And that's really the first of the Newton Hills. And uh, people are finally starting to recognize that as okay, you know, you've got to prepare yourself for that because especially if it's a windy day, you're exposed. I mean, there's nothing to stop the wind and it's a long hill. Well, by mile 16 that day, I was a mess, absolute mess. I was cramping up, didn't know anything about hydration. Heck, I was just, my legs were viciously cramping. And, you know, it's one of those every 10 steps, I, you know, stop and scream in pain and, um, it, it it was a real struggle to get to the finish line that day. I ended up running like a 319 and, you know, which is respectable, but it wasn't what I expected. You know, I'm thinking sub three should be easy for this course. You know, uh, I'm a good runner. I can do that. But no, I mean, it was, it was a tough day. In fact, it was so tough. I remember I was sitting in, um, on Boylston street after the finish line, not you know, a couple hundred yards down the street and my wife and mother were standing over me. Um, I was I was mentally and physically broken. I, through tears, I told them, never, ever let me do something that stupid to myself ever again. And, you know, basically I had them both, you know, my arms over their shoulders trying to carry me back to the car. And, um, you know, they, they had stood at the finish line, God bless them, for hours and hours and hours because you had to get there early and you couldn't leave your, lose your, leave your spot. So they stood there for probably six to eight hours, you know, just waiting for some old guy to limp down Boylston Street. And you, you, <laughs> you actually had to take a couple days off from work. You were so sore. Yeah, I took a couple days off from work. I, yeah, it just I couldn't walk. I, I literally <laughs> had. Well, part of my problem is I dehydrate easily, and um, I found that I, I can lose up to twenty pounds in a marathon. Wow, just water weight. So I. You know, everything cramps at that point. <laughs> so I wasn't able to walk, get in a car, drive, anything. <laughs> so uh, as the expression goes, uh, time heals all wounds, right? Yes. Um, so so when did you know or when did you decide that you would run your second Boston Marathon? Um, it, you know, physically it took me a couple of weeks to get better. Then maybe three or four months later, I'm thinking, you know, what did I do wrong? You know, start, you know, using my analytical side to start sorting out, you know, okay, I didn't do a lot of 20 mile training runs. I didn't do um, my hydration strategy wrong. My, my pacing was wrong. Um, you know, and, you know, it took three or four months before I started talking to my buddy again, Mike and saying, okay, let's try this again. And let's really, uh, you know, I'm going to get with the greater little roadrunners and start eking out their knowledge and start doing those 20 mile runs on Saturdays, you know, every week for, you know, 12, 16 weeks leading up. And that 
change things a bit for me without mm-hmm. a doubt. Yeah. Um, so talk a little bit about, uh, about that second year, um, and, um, uh, how the experience was different for you that second time around. Well, the second time around, um, because I did a lot more of those long training runs, I mean, Boston especially is about, or any marathon is time on your feet training, you know, it's, and you've run a marathons before. So, you, you know, it's, it's not, it's not about speed work. It's about time on your feet and getting used to your body being tired and continue to push, you know, it's mind over the body and uh, it's proper training. It's nutrition. It's, you know, fluids, everything else, but you know, all the training I put in, put me in a much better place. Did I do a lot better? Yeah, I think I was about 15 minutes faster, but you know, still it wasn't a breakout year for me without it, you know, but, but I was now it was 305 range, which, you know, was a real qualifier for the race. So it set me up for the next year. And, you know, that was always the key getting that qualifier for the next year. Yeah. Yeah. Well that, yeah. And that's a, that's a really good point. So, um, uh, did you, did you qualify for that second year because of that first year, uh, finish no. or did, did you, so how did you, how did you get a bib that second year? Cause I, I, again, as people that are, that are familiar with the Boston marathon understand that, um, you know, there, there are qualifying standards. I mean, not, you, you just can't go on a website and register for the race. I mean, you, you have to, you have to qualify for the race or you have to, you have to join a charity team to raise money for uh, a nonprofit or uh, you gotta, you gotta know someone, you gotta be connected in order to get a bib. So how did you get a bib year two? Year two, I was, I was connected, um, to this friend, Mike Chisholm. Um, he was good friends with, uh, the guy who was in charge of the insurance commission in Massachusetts. And John Hancock is a big insurance company. <laughs> and so this, this gentleman in the insurance commission just tapped John Hancock on the shoulder and said, I need a couple bibs and they appear. Awesome. And you know, it's, there's a lot of ways to get in as you, you explained and stuff. And, you know, I, I look at the charity runners um, in Marvel personally, because not only are they doing the, all the training, but they are raising huge amounts of money. And, and that scared, that would scare me more than the training, you know, having to, you know, I, my, my son ran last year as a, um, as a charity runner and he had to raise $12,000. Wow. I was more worried about that than him training. Cause I yeah. knew he could do the training. No, for, yeah, for sure. Kid, but $12,000 as, as a young father, I went, Oh my God, how are you going to do this? Yeah, for sure. Um, and, you know, and, and of course those, um, those folks that, um, that participate as charity runners, uh, oftentimes they, they, they participate multiple years, year over year. And, uh, and no question that, that the fundraising for one year would be daunting, but to, but to sort of, to, to tap into your, you know, your personal contacts again, that next year and ask for donations, yes, becomes, becomes increasingly difficult. So, um, so, so year two, uh, you, you run a qualifying time. Right. Um, and so, and so therefore, you know, you're, 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 you're into the event, uh, year three when, so when, when did this become a streak? I mean, maybe obviously year two, it was a streak, but when in your mind, um, did it, um, did this, I'll say 
I'll say passion for the Boston Marathon developed, but it, but other people might describe it as an obsession with the Boston Marathon. But Scott, when when did this become a streak? Um, I think it became a streak somewhere around, oh God, probably, you know, I think it was number 17 or so. Um, I think it was 2004 where it became a obsession. Um, and let me tell you why, because I knew I was totally hooked that year because, um, 2004, it started to hit 90 degrees on the course. And I was, you know, damn the torpedoes. I had trained to go sub three. I'm going sub three today. I hit mile 17 and a half at the corner of the fire at the fire station. I was completely depleted. I, you know, I was, I was in bad shape, knew I needed electrolytes. So I went over to the medical tent that was there and said, I need electrolytes. You know, do you got some Gatorade or something like that? Some salt tablets or whatever I can, you know, pop. And they said, why don't you come in and we'll check you out? And I went and I said, remember saying to the lady, I know how this game works. If I walk in there, you're ripping my bib off. <laughs> I said, that's not happening. <laughs> so, you know, they, they got me the electrolytes and I continued on. I um, got to, I think I got to about mile 18 and a friend of mine, Roger Nasaka pulls up alongside me and I'm looking at him and I go, he goes, Hey Scotty, how you doing? I go, horrible. And then I was like, what are you doing here? This guy was a 230 marathoner. He goes, same thing as you, Scotty, just trying to survive. We were literally taking steps that were no longer than six inches a piece. Right. You know, and we, we helped each other finish. We finished, he went left, I went right. And we both ended up, you know, losing what was in our stomach. Yeah. And it was just, it was, it was bad. But I knew at that point I was definitely sadly hooked forever and i i had to make it to 25 yeah well so 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 that 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 story raises a good point because uh for so for for clarification um this is a boston marathon finish streak not a boston marathon start streak correct oh yes oh yeah finishing is part of it. you have to finish yes yeah in order for it in order for it to so quote unquote count uh in yeah. terms of the streak so um when so years so you're describing you know year 17 or so um and 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 battling through those incredibly challenging conditions um when when did you get connected or or when did you when did you discover that there was this streaker club like that you that you weren't the only one that there were other people out there doing it and i'm sure at that point um the you know the point at which you uh, you realized that there were you know there were sort of active streak records at that time there i mean you'll you'll tell me there probably were people that easily had been doing it for 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 30 years maybe some even 40 years when 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 did it become obvious to you or when did you when did you learn that there was this group of people um who were streaking the Boston Marathon um it was probably around 2000 i think is when the quarter century club got started um and so i i had realized it at that point and you know started looking at i figured at that point i'm around 15 or so in going hey maybe i can make it to this thing um and you know it was just year in year out you know get yourself in shape and uh you know i always looked at it too as as a way to stay in shape over the winter months right? Because you had a, something to focus on. I'm very goal-oriented. 
And having that out there in April meant that you had to do the work in, in December, January, February, the worst months of the year. And, uh, you know, the, the streak, you know, I look at some of the people who've done that and I, um, I, I have the records of all the streakers. Um, I helped put it together. Uh, last year, we actually pulled all the records from every single runner who's done 25 or more and put it into one master spreadsheet. And some of these guys are incredible. Where you know these aren't your uh, you know weekend jot warriors. A lot of these guys are the people who could run two twenty and two thirty marathons when in their prime and stuff. In fact, a, a funny story years ago when I was first um, in the quarter century club, we always meet the Saturday before the marathon at the expo, and we'll go off in a corner and meet and have a little meeting. They they do a they have a team bus. Uh, that brings them to the race. They have a pasta dinner Saturday night, you know, all kinds of little activities, nothing, nothing huge, but I'm standing there with the, a bunch of people and somebody came over to me and uh, was asking what was going on. I says, Oh, these are the quarter century club people. You know, they've all run 25 or more consecutive Boston marathons and stuff. And uh, the guy says, Oh, what, you know, what kinds of times are they running today? I says, well, you know, some of these guys are in their sixties and stuff. So it's four or five hours. I mean, but they're, they're keeping going, they're keeping active and stuff. And that's the important part. And he kind of chuckles like, you know, four or five hours. What, what, what's that? What kind of run is that? And I, I noticed that I says, well, would you run for a time to qualify? He said, Oh, I ran a three Oh five. And I laughed. I said, most of these guys are two thirty guys in their prime. So <laughs> be careful what you laugh at son. Yeah, it's good. It, really good point. Um, uh, it, it, it sort of help it help help to put it into context a little bit. Um, what are we talking about in in terms of in terms of numbers of athletes in that in that quarter uh, century club? Are we talking a, a dozen people? Are we talking a couple dozen people? Help help us to understand uh, how many streakers are there out there uh, for okay. the Boston Marathon. Active streakers, ninety nine. Wow. <laughs> Retired streakers. People who've ended their streak, eighty-three. Wow. Okay. So, um, so of the list that of the list that you are referencing, um, what what's the longest current active streak? Do you actually do you have that number? Sure do. It is fifty-three. Fifty-three years. Yes. And and who, do you have the name of that individual? Mark Bauman from Kentucky. Okay, Mark Baum from Kentucky. Oh has no, some... I take that back. Uh, Flushing, Minnesota. Okay, <laughs> okay. I don't know why right. it says KY. He has two different <laughs> okay. designations right. on his name here. Even, even more, even more impressive. Fifty-three years is the longest active Boston yep. Marathon finish streak. Yep, fifty-three now, years. Now the um, person who's in second place, interestingly, is who, David who is McGillery. That Dave McGillivray? Yeah, the race director. Now, you may know this, but he, um, he these days, he actually goes and runs the race after That's the right. race is done. He'll go back at night with a group of friends and run run the course. Yeah, how about so? How about that? So McGilvery was racing the Boston Marathon be, before he he took over the Boston Marathon right. yep. as as race as race organizer. And of course, not to want his streak to end, uh, he still ran the race. He just he he ran it after the race was over. Yeah, and he'll interestingly he'll tell the story that his first attempt he failed. <laughs> 
he dropped out. He was 17 years old. You know, I think he was a bandit that day, but, uh, you know, he thought he could just show up and run like all young people when they first run the race. And now he found out he couldn't do that. Pretty, yeah, pretty, pretty extraordinary. So, um, uh, so at, at, at this point, um, it, is there any special privilege that is granted to streakers in terms of, in terms of getting bibs or do they, do you still need to technically qualify? How does, how does that work? Yeah. So once you hit 25 years, the B of qualifying, the BAA says, okay, you've proved you can do it. So, um, they, they give us a, a pass, but it's with a stipulation. You have to finish within the time limit that the BAA sets. And what they do is, um, if you don't have a qualifier, they put you in wave two corral eight, which is the last corral in wave two. Um, then what they say is, okay, you have to finish within six hours of the last person crossing the starting line from wave four. So you get six hours and 50 minutes maybe is what you, when you end up getting, uh, which is still, as you get older, it gets harder. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of funny. Every year we lose a couple people because they don't make that time. I mean, you know, they're getting up, a lot of people are getting in their 70s and what have you. And, and we also get a, usually a note from somebody every year, one or two people that, you know, cash it in saying, I can't, I can't tow the line this year. I'm ending my streak. And it's always a sad letter. You know, you know, it, at some point, everyone's going to have to do this. And so you, you know, it's, it's what it is, but you know, what is the BA lets us do that. And, you know, they're a great group of people, BAA, um, and they, they have rules and they, they hold to them and I, I understand it. And, uh, but they, like I said, there is a bus that they provide just the quarter century club members to go from Boston to Hopkinton. It's a special bus, uh, that's organized by the group. And, uh, you know, that that's really the only two things we get from the BAA, and, well, and it's it's enough for us. Oh well, I mean, it, look the, <laughs> the the Boston Marathon is a popular enough event that they don't have to they 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 don't have to grant anybody special privileges with respect right. to the race. However, um, clearly they recognize um, the loyalty, the perseverance um, of the of of folks like yourself and others. Um, you know, who have sort of almost made this uh, lifelong commitment, if you will, uh, to the race. Um, so it's it, it, it's cool that they recognize it. And it's really cool that they that they provide some some special privileges. Well, you 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 sort of you 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 mentioned and alluded to um, uh, some of the reasons that uh, folks, um, you know, might need to end their streak. Um uh, and 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 we'll we'll talk about some of the adversity that you've faced along the way because I'm I'm sure there were years where maybe <laughs> maybe through you know uh, uh, chewing gum and chicken wire you you patch things together enough to 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 to, to get across the finish line but um, but 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 there have been some extraordinary challenges uh, along the way. Um, uh, not the least of which, of course, is uh, April 15th of, of 2013 when, when two terrorists planted two homemade pressure cooker bombs near the finish line. Those bombs detonated you know, approximately 14 seconds and about, uh, about 200 meters apart. 
three spectators uh, died, Martin, uh, Richard, uh, 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 Ling Zing Lu, and, and Crystal Campbell. Um, Scott, you were there um, uh, at that 2013 Boston Marathon. Um, tell your story of that day. Okay, so at, at that point in time, you know, my son, he was attending uh, Wentworth College, which is down in the Finway area. Um, so he was a spectator, okay? Um, I had started in wave one back then, and I don't remember exactly what I ran that day, but um, I know the clock read 4, 4.10 when the bombs went off, um, but that was based on the second or third wave. So I, I know that I had finished almost an hour and a half prior to the bombs. So I was pretty much out of, out of the area. I was down at the Park Plaza Hotel, which is three, four blocks down the street from uh, the finish line. Um, I'd run okay that day. And uh, my wife knew my son was down there and, you know, nothing had happened at that point. I had gotten back to the hotel, showered up, was uh, doing okay. Um, but then I realized I needed to use the bathroom and I couldn't use the team bathrooms because people were showering in there. So I said, yeah, let's go down to the hotel lobby to uh, use the bathroom down there. And I did, took care of my business, uh, went back to get in the elevator and noticed there was a line of a couple hundred people to get on the elevators. And I knew, I, you know, the team room was up in the sixth floor and we, we had two or three team rooms. Um, so I heard someone say, hey, the uh, hotel service elevator is available for runners. Okay, good enough. I got on the hotel el el uh, service elevator and all of a sudden the world started getting real woozy on me. I was dehydrated once again. Um, by the fourth floor, I realized I was about to pass out. So I hit the, the stop button and opened the doors and I fell out of the elevator into the hotel service area and I'm on the floor and, you know, I'm sweats pouring out of me. I'm dehydrated and, you know, quivering and, you know, they're, they're looking for a doctor and I'm, I'm, I'm there. No, just give me water. I'll be fine. Water, you know, after about 10 minutes, they got me water and I said, okay, I got to get up to the team room. And I um, looked at the elevator and says, you know what? I only got two more flights to go. I'll just take the stairs because I don't know what this elevator is going to do to me. I get up there and the, the people of the greater Lowell, you know, they, they do a good job of watching out for the runners and stuff. But they said, Scott, you need to go down and get an IV, you know, back down in the finish area and get some IVs. And I, I kind of shook them off and, okay, good enough. Um, they, they appeased me. I was sitting out in the hallway and all of a sudden somebody comes out and says, uh, okay, we got a problem here. Something's going on down at the finish line. And they looked at me and says, Scott, even if you wanted, you can't get down there now. Something's really, something really bad's happening. And, um, and so I, I had a couple other friends and we always ditch a car, me and my buddies, ditch a car, um, at the parking garage above Margiano's, which is across the street on Sunday night. So we can get out of there. We don't have to wait till the last person finishes for Greater Lowell. So we decided, I tell my friends, we got to get out of here or this city's going to go gridlock, right? We already realized that our cell phones were shut down. So we get out of there and I jump into the driver's seat. My buddy looks at me, goes, this guy, uh, Peter Floss, he looks at me going, hold on, you just passed out. You're not driving. <laughs> it's a good point. So he starts driving and uh, uh, the, the other person I have with us was a woman named Jill Trotter, who's a very good runner. 
Um, and, you know, our phones weren't working, but we could see Facebook was working and stuff. And, you know, the city was becoming really locked down quick. Um, we got over the um, Zakem Bridge and just down the outskirts of Boston, all of a sudden our phones exploded with text messages coming in from all over the place. People, you know, concerned and stuff. And, you know, my all of a sudden my um, Jill's phone rings and it's my youngest daughter screaming, crying, trying to find me because she couldn't she didn't know where I was. And, you know, and then my wife, she's panicking because my son was down in the area. You know, little did she know that he had saw me go by, went back to school. He realized what was going on. He ran back to the Park Plaza Hotel to find me. So he was in the area, you know, just trying to find it. But it was um, between, you know, text messages and Facebook, we were able to communicate to everybody what was going on. But uh, it was, you know, it was pretty scary. And my, my office uh, back then was two blocks away from the finish line. So we couldn't go in the office for a couple weeks because of they were trying to collect every ounce of evidence, anything that was around there. And that was, you know, that was a long process. So do um, you, um, do you, do you, do you remember or recollect if there were any um, members of the greater Lowell Roadrunners that were more directly involved uh, that were near the finish area at that time? Um, no, there was nobody really near the finish area. Um, a lot of people got stopped out on Com Ave from Greater Lowell. So it was, you know, Comav, you got stopped and you were a mile or so away. And, you know, they, they ended up, you know, just coming around Comav all the way down to Arlington Street and then getting the Park Plaza Hotel because obviously Boylston Street was totally blocked off and stuff. But no, none of the Greater Lowell people were in the area that I recall. Yeah. So what did... Um... What did the BAA do for those streakers um, who actually didn't log an official finish because they were stopped? Uh, you know, and, yep. and the race was the race was the race was terminated. It was halted there at that at that time. Um, did did what happened to those what happened yep. to those streakers? Yep, there was a definite um, positive uh, response from the BAA. They they took the persons where they ended up being stopped or their last checkpoint and sit and extrapolate their time to the finish with, you know, a 5% decline in speed over that. So if you were at the 30 K mark, 18.6 miles, they'd say, okay, you know, based on that, you would have finished in, you know, five and a half hours. You're good. So they, they, they did that. In fact, I don't think there was anybody that got bumped from the quarter century club because of the, the going ons uh, of the, uh, you know, bombings. Um, so 2014, you'd return to the race. Um, did it feel different? Was there a different emotion? Was there a different vibe um, coming back uh, that next year uh, after oh, everything that had happened? Absolutely different vibe. It was a, you know, almost a defiant vibe. Like, we're not going to let people take this away from us. You know, two, two rogue people are not going to change what hundreds of thousands and millions of people do on their daily basis. And it was, you know, anybody and everyone who had run the Boston Marathon prior wanted to be there for that race. Um, I think the numbers, they, they bumped up that year a bit, but it was uh, definitely uh, 
a mood where people were like, we're, we're going back. We're not going to let this change things for us. That's for mm. certain. Now, what, yeah, I, I, I can only imagine how <clears throat> how emotional it must have been um, uh, for everyone, but but particularly for for folks that had been there the year before and more specifically um, for folks, uh, you know, so who call Boston home, right? Um, uh, or second home. Um, so in, in 2020, um, the Boston marathon was held virtually, uh, because of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, but you, and, and, but you, you kept your streak alive. Tell, tell, tell us the story, uh, of, <laughs> of your virtual Boston marathon finish, uh, in 2020. Okay, so the BAA uh, decided in 2020, uh, the race was scheduled for April 20th. I think they made the call in January saying it's not happening, you know, or I, maybe it wasn't that soon. Uh, it was probably in March, April timeframe where they said, that's it. We, we can't do this. The pandemic's happening. You know, it's not going to happen. Well, so I kind of um, took myself and said, okay. Good enough. I was staying up in my place in Moltenboro, New Hampshire, and um, made a bunch of friends up in Moltenboro. I decided, let's run every road in Moltenboro, New Hampshire. Great. You know, a bunch of teachers, uh, the principal of the uh, academy, uh, Moltenboro Academy guy named Andy Coppinger uh, was a friend. And um, I was talking to him one day, and I says, you know, I got to keep this streak going. I said, uh, you mind if I use your track on April 20th? He goes, well, we're not in classes, so it shouldn't cause any problems. I said, okay. And he said, uh, he says, what do you have in mind? I says, I'm going to run a marathon. He goes, on a track? I go, it's only 106 laps. Actually, it's 105 and a half, but we'll make it 106 just to make sure that, you know, I appease all the running gods, making sure I go the full distance. So I, I, Got showed up there probably, I think it was like 5 a.m. in the morning and um, set up my lawn chair at the starting line, you know, a cooler and started running. Um, about 6 a.m., uh, another set of friends, uh, Justin and Jen uh, Chapman, who were teachers in town, and their daughter, Ada, who's a, actually a very aspiring runner and cross-country skier up in New Hampshire these days, um, they showed up. And they set signs up around the track. And I was already like 10 miles in, but they had all the signs for the different towns. So as I reach a mile marker, the town would change. They changed the sign. So it was pretty funny. And uh, round and round I go. By the time I finished, well, you know, then more and more people were showing up. But I had only told Andy that I was doing this. But he had told, you know, two friends who told two friends. And all of a sudden I got a crowd of, you know, 30 plus people there, uh, Kale Poland showed up because Kale was living in, lives in Moltenboro. And you know, Kale, he's a big endurance nut. And he, uh, he had his shirt on saying something like, uh, fat, strong. And, you know, my nickname's fat, which means pain heavy at times. Um, so round and round I went and I ended up covering the thing in four hours and 16 minutes. And, you know, and, uh, it was it was pretty funny because you know they set up a sitco sign. Um, every time I go around, they'd be ringing bells and stuff. And uh, in fact, uh, Justin Chapman he was teaching a class. 
you know, he had tethered his uh, laptop to his um, PC and was teaching a class for Center Heart. Oh, what time is he teaching? Sandwich, I guess it is. So I was, it was pretty funny. It was a very, uh, you know, celebratory environment, but uh, it worked out. And, pretty, uh, yeah. you know, I was amazed that the people showed up to see an old guy limp around a track. Well, pretty, pretty extraordinary. So, um, <laughs> Uh, upon reflection, uh, what's more difficult, 26.2 miles around a 400-meter track or 26.2 miles on the Boston Marathon course? The Boston Marathon course, without a doubt. Um, yeah. Okay. So I've done actually two more of those virtual marathons <laughs> on the track. Uh, BAA announced that geez, instead of holding the 2020 race, everyone's going to go virtual and you're going to do it. You have one week to do it between Labor Day and the following weekend. So September 5th, I went down the Moultonboro Academy track again, set up my chair and thing and round and round I went. And that, and so that, that was, um, that was 2021 the next year. No, that was 2020, 2021, April 19th. I did it yet again because the BAA, postpone the race again. That's right. So, yeah. So in, okay. So, so in 2021, um, because the pandemic was, was, was still a thing um, early. So early in 2021, the BAA uh, announced that um, uh, the race was just not going to happen on Patriots day, 2021. Right. So their fallback plan was, uh, was October. Uh, right? so, the, so the race was going to be held in October of 2021. I believe that the first time that the race would ever be held in the fall. That's correct. Yep. Correct. Yep. Um, so, um, so did, did, did you race that, that race that the Boston marathon that fall? No, you, you, you did it virtually again. No, no. What, what happened was um, I did run it in the October race um, but April 19th, which was the day it was supposed to happen in 2021, uh, I went to the track at Westford Academy in Westford, it. Massachusetts got and it. ran around the track and had got a bunch it. of friends show up again. Got it. Uh, so you, you didn't technically need to do that because you were going to be racing the, you're going to be racing the actual Boston marathon later that fall. Uh, so, so why, why, why go back and, uh, why go back and, and run 106 laps on a track again? Just it's April. It's Patriots Day. It's, it's the what day I run a marathon, and so I wanted to be true to the the um, streak, and that's the way I handled it. You know, yeah. just yeah, pretty. That's that's pretty funny. Um, well, similar similar question um, with regard to uh, how the BAA handled the truncated uh, uh, 2013 Boston Marathon. How did how did the BAA handle the virtual year? Did how did um, how did they veri verify or authenticate that people had run the race virtually so as to keep their Boston Marathon streaks alive? Yeah, mo most people have um, Garmin watches or some form of GPS watches, so a lot of people um, were able to submit their Garmin or their Strava tracks. Uh, to, to, you know, prove that they did this. And, you know, those, there's, um, you know, Strava or Garmin or whoever it is, there's always a leakage in GPS tracking. 
and that, that's that's why I actually made sure I went 106 laps versus 105 and a half. Right. Um, but you know, every time I did on a track, my watch ended up saying I did 27.2 miles, an extra mile. <laughs> but I know in reality, and it always shows me all over the track. When I stayed in lane one, I was not going to run a step further than I needed to. And so, um, you know, most people ended up probably doing a little further than a 26.2 just to make sure they, you know, people know that you lose distance yeah. with a Garmin. So. Yeah. Well, I mean, with any with any GPS device, um, uh, the user has the opportunity to set up um, the battery life of the device based on the types of activities that they do. And of course, there's always a trade-off, right? As you, as you increase the battery life of your device, yep. you decrease the accuracy right, exactly. because you're, you're decreasing the, I mean, I don't know the technical elements of it, but you, I think essentially you decrease the number of pings the, the device uh, yep. sends off of the, off of the satellite. So there, there always is that 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 trade-off of course um so um at this point uh uh scott is the is running the boston marathon for you uh is it is it more about the streak is it about the race performance or is it just about the experience now what what is it about it yeah um you know in my earlier days i always had you know lofty aspirations of speed and stuff like that it's no longer no longer one of the aspirations. Uh, it's the experience. It's it is the streak. Obviously, uh, there's a certain pride that goes along with having that streak. And uh, you know, I, I've been very lucky to never be seriously injured towing the line. Um, that you know, thank God that's never happened. I've I've showed up dinged up, pulled hamstring muscles. Uh, you know, maybe a slight fever. Uh, weather conditions not so good. I mean, but you, as you know, any endurance sport, there's a lot of willpower of your mind that gets you through it. You know, the trainings obviously helps you, but it's the mind that you have to train more than anything else in the long run. Um, so it's, you know, the experience. I mean, there's there's nothing like coming down Boylston Street and your ears ringing. Of course, there is one place that's a little louder on the course with not quite as many people, and that's, that's Wellesley. Um, and it's always funny because you always get alongside somebody who, you know, at like 11 and a half, 12 miles going, what the hell's that noise? <laughs> and you'll, you'll just chuckle and say, those are the co-eds at Wellesley College. And you'll go through there and your ears are absolutely ringing. And, you know, these days they keep all the girls um, to the right side of you uh, behind barriers. Back in the 80s, they formed a gauntlet. You could fit no more than two people through this thing at any one time, and they were right in your face. And, you know, it's just high-pitched teenage girls screaming just – you know, everyone who felt bad at that point was all perked up. And and if you were by one of the first women, it was even louder. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, and I've heard other runners uh, use that very same uh, description about their ears ringing um, as they as they travel through that part of the course. Um, so what, you know, again, 
37th year uh, coming up this this April, um, and um, we're taping the show uh, in early February. The show will be released probably sometime in late March, uh, early April. Um, and for for most folks um, who are uh, who who have the Boston Marathon on their schedule, um, you know, traditional as you as you pointed out earlier, traditional Boston Marathon training programs um, sort of kick off mid December, um, right? And uh, so so by this point, um, most folks who have traditionally been training for the Boston Marathon have been training for, uh, you know, six, seven, eight weeks by now, right? So again, we're, we're taping the show in, in early February uh, for a late March, uh, early April release. Um, 37th year now, what does your training look like now, Scott? Um, uh, talk a little bit about uh, how you prepare for the Boston Marathon now. Well, it's well, it isn't quite the number of miles. I won't I won't hit hundred mile weeks anymore. I mean, if I hit a fifty mile week, that that's huge for me these days. Um, I've been kind of doing a lot more uh, long hiking. You know, doing the New Hampshire forty eight. You know, over and over again. Um, and, you know, doing some long runs. Now a long run to me is 13 miles. I just, my body just won't hold up to 20 milers that often anymore. Um, I'll try and get one in a year, but 13 is about as far as I'll go on a, on a, any given Sunday. Um, and it's always with friends. I mean, it's, as you know, the, um, you're more likely to show up to a workout if, you have other people you're meeting there because you don't want to disappoint them. You made a commitment and you want to show up because you don't want to disappoint those people. And, you know, it makes the, the hours go by too. And uh, it's a lot more fun being around other people. And, uh, you know, one thing I've learned uh, about racing over the years, you know, in my early years was about winning things. Then, you know, over the years now it's more, I found that I, what I enjoy most about running is the training and being with other people and, you know, continuing to push yourself, but just getting out there and being with other people. It isn't about beating other people. You're, you're competing against your yourself and at the age you are at that point in your life. So mm. it's, it's a different mentality without a doubt. Yeah. Um, now that you are, um, uh, your primary uh, residence is in the Lakes region of New Hampshire. Um, do you do you get an opportunity to train on the course um, any longer? Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'll I'll go out there. Um, you know, I I, I kind of switch back and forth between Moultonboro, New Hampshire, and Westford, Massachusetts. More more Westford than Moultonboro these days uh, since the pandemic ended. But uh, Greater Lowell Roadrunners has four to five um, runs on the course every March, depending on how many Saturdays there are in March. So they'll drop us off at, um, at the Wellesley Community Center, have us run to uh, Heartbreak Hill, mile 21, and then back. So that's like a 12-mile run the first week. And then every week it gets a little further. And uh, the last one or two are uh, from Hopkinton all the way to the 21-mile mark. And they, they drive us down, set up. Um, you know, tables on the course to get you food and drink and stuff and, you know, and, and help you along, you know, get you warmer clothes, whatever you need while you're doing your training run. And, you know, 
Green and Lowell has been fantastic that way. And, uh, you know, the last one typically is the um, charity run event, too, where they ship all the charity runners out to the start and they run them to mile 21. So you could have 5,000 people out on the course that day. It's amazing the number of people out there. And it's it's a lot of fun. It's a celebration. You know, this is really one of the last long runs people do before the race because it's usually two to three weeks prior. And uh, it, it's a big celebration. Yeah, and right. uh, it's a lot of fun. And, you know, I say Great Alola sets up tables for their runners. It's actually for any runner who needs something. And and all the clubs do that. It's just we're all out there helping each other out. And uh, yeah. it's a big celebration. Yeah, I think for um, for anyone outside of the of the area um, um, that um, uh, that that group run um, uh, experience um, on the Boston Marathon course um, is just probably something that people don't appreciate. But to your point. Um, it is a thing. Um, and, um, it's, it, I mean, it, 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 it's an important, uh, thing because I know, I, and I've, I've spoken to a, a number of first time Boston marathoners, um, who find that experience of being able to get on the course for a handful of training runs, either through their, their, their charity team, uh, or through their running club. Um, those folks that live in the region, uh, just just the opportunity to get on the course before race day is is an important thing um well because you have such uh you, you, you have such a history at that race um i want to talk about um uh, a handful of uh uh of uh of unique experiences you've had uh over the last 36 years so um so let me ask you about those um first is <clears throat> what's your most memorable boston marathon Okay. So, um, yeah, it's, yeah, I, I guess it has to be 2018. Now people go 2018. Why 2018? It rained so hard that day and it was, you know, Desi won, um, the woman's race and Yuki from Japan won the, the men's race. Uh, you know, Yuki was just, you know, I call him an everyday runner, but he's a, He's run more sub-220 marathons than anyone else in the world. Um, but he wasn't picked to be a winner that day. He's just gutted it out. And, you know, it, it was cold. It was 35 degrees, and it was raining. Something to the effect, um, if you remember the movie Caddyshack, where Bill Murray's out on the course with the bishop, and it's just deluging. And we're at the starting line, and it's just coming down. You know, I have never been that wet before a race ever in my life. And I've never been rained on that much in my life ever. I mean, even in some of these, um, you know, out on Winnipesaukee, you end up with these heat storms in the summer where the skies explode and, you know, you get two inches of water in 10 minutes. That was just like for all 26 miles. And uh, it was cold and wet. And that's the worst, as you know, that's the worst weather to run in. Because you're 35 degrees and soaking wet, you're not going to get warm. It doesn't matter what you do. Um, and in fact, my Garmin watch—they had a, a glitch in the watches um, when they got to a certain temperature level uh, in the cold. They would shut down. Mine shut down at like mile 22 that day, <laughs> which, which I'm looking at. I said, "Son of a gun!" <laughs> my watch shut down, and other people were saying the same thing that their Garmin watch—they fixed that glitch. Thank God, but. Um, 
it was just so wet. People were just laughing at the starting line going, it, it can't be any worse than this. Now, one of the things that kind of helped, though, was all those Saturday training runs I talked about, we either got rained on or snowed on almost five weeks in a row leading up to that year. So us New Englanders, we were pretty used to it. People outside the region, though, there was a high dropout rate that year for people outside. And, you know, a funny story, because Dave McGilvery is a friend of mine. Um, he told me they ran into another unforeseen problem that they had to address years after um, just to make sure it doesn't happen again. You know, in the medical tents, they were handing out the uh, heat shield blankets during the, the race. So people were running with those on to try and keep some of the wetness off of them and, you know, keep some body temperature in. Well, people were ditching them on Hereford Street. Those things are like ice when they're wet. So you get to Hereford Street, they were covered with these blankets. And people were falling down because they were stepping on these blankets and boom, 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 boom. So now they actually post people on Hereford Street to grab Mylar blankets if they start ditching them again. That's crazy. Yeah, it was That's just it was just so cold and wet that day and people were just laughing. It's like, okay, time's out the window here. You know, let's just, just get through it. And most New Englanders did fine that day because they were just used to the weather. Well, and that that year, that finish was not guaranteed or given. I mean, no, no marathon finish is necessarily always uh, always a given. But that year in, in particular, uh, hypothermia was a real consideration. Oh, yeah. um, and uh, I mean, obviously, just as challenging as a 75 degree day in April in Boston can be for the marathon. Um, those conditions um, were, were, were absolutely uh, challenging. Um, all right. Um, I think you might have alluded to it or mentioned it earlier, but fastest Boston marathon. Yeah, that was uh, 1990. Um, my son was just born. Leading up to that, my wife was on bed rest for most of the, you know, the last three months. So all I had to do was train. I didn't have anything more going on than training and checking in on her and, you know, taking care of her. And, uh, you know, she, uh, she was a trooper and, uh, I just was in great shape going into that race and I ended up running a 246. And, wow. you, know, you know, the thing is I walked probably three or four miles of that course too, Mile 16 is my, is my daddy. It just, it breaks. Every time I hit mile 16, it's like, oh, I don't have it. I, you know, walked a couple times and, you know, but my, by mile 21, someone in the crowd had handed me a, a lemonade that just loaded with sugar and just revived me. And I dropped it back down into, you know, sub six minute pace for the last five miles and was able to, you know, bring it in. But pretty, that, that pretty amazing. Fastest. And uh, you were in your late 30s, early 40s? Uh, uh, 30s. I was in my 30s at that point in time. Mid, mid to late 30s. Yeah. Yeah. 1990. Right? Yeah, I was 31, actually. Okay. Early 30s. All right. My ma yeah. math was bad. Uh, 31. 246. Extraordinary. Um, all right. Slowest Boston Marathon. Yeah, that was a 4:48. That was in 2001. <laughs> that was the fall race they had. Oh, okay. okay so, um, I'm not a very good hot weather runner, 
so training in the summer months doesn't work out for me. And I just never, never could get a good training run in and never, you know, it's just age is catching up 63 years old that year. And uh, so, yeah, I just didn't, didn't work out actually 62. Yeah. It didn't work out well that day. And I, I, I was suffering the whole race. Um, okay. Um, <laughs> 36 years uh, of running the Boston Marathon, uh, 30, 35 years of being actually in Boston with, uh, with tens of thousands of other people um, during that time, um, because it's not uncommon, as you know, for celebrities to show up uh, at the Boston Marathon. Um, while you were uh, running, um, did you ever have any close encounters with famous people? Um, more so runners who are famous than celebrities. You know, celebrities, you know, not a lot of them can run a, a three-hour marathon. Okay, fair. Okay, so, so typically they weren't around me at the start or, you know, even in the finish. But because I was running, I, for many years, I was in the first corral of the non-elites. So I'd be up there, in the, you know, some of the front rows and um, all the elites would come on. And you, you recognize them all and stuff. Uda Pippig was a, always a, a fan favorite. I, I don't know if you remember her, but she, uh, she was always a fan favorite. And uh, when she'd come out, everyone would go nuts. Uh, but all, all the winners and stuff would all be right there in front of me, and which was very um, – it was hard to hold yourself back at the gun, but you knew you had to. You, you couldn't go out with them because they're running at a much different level than uh, everyone I was standing around. Um, oh, in the 100th Boston, um, for about five or six miles, I ran with Bill Rogers. Um, he was – he actually had a cell phone taped to his arm and was doing interviews during the race. It was kind of funny because he was, he's, he looks at me going, Scotty, this is, this is tough. I can't, you know, have to, I can hardly hear the questions these people are asking because I'd go by a crowd and they'd be screaming for me and I can't hear a thing. You know, you know it was basically all runners over the celebrities that I'd end up running into. Very, very cool. Well, well, um, Boston Billy, uh, as he as as he has been known, uh, um, you know, is uh, at least in this area uh, has got to be one of the most famous, iconic uh, uh, runners uh, in in, in our in our neck of the woods. Of course, obviously, he 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 came to prominence on the national stage as well. But um, but uh, but Bill Rogers is is our guy. Right. Boston Billy. Oh yeah. Yeah. He, he actually, you know, without giving too much away, um, he lives in Boxborough these days. Um, and so he, he's a, he's a nice guy. And I, I know exactly, I used to run past his house all the time when I, uh, was working out in that area, out in Littleton. So nice guy, uh, you know, is all about running, you know, keeping healthy and everything else. And I'll see him at different events every now and then, uh, didn't happen to see him over the weekend. I don't know if he made it to the run show or not. Um, it was a pretty big event. Uh, I got to meet Carl Lewis, which, which I went, wow, Carl Lewis is here. Okay. I got to say hello to this guy. I, I saw that. Yes, I saw that you had your, you had your, your picture taken with him or, um, maybe, maybe, uh, said, uh, more appropriately, Carl Lewis had his picture taken with, with, with you. Yeah, um, I, 
<laughs> um, yeah. Right. Speaking of celebrity sightings, I'm sure Carl Lewis is telling that story. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, so you you of anybody that I know, in fact, uh, you 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 have uh, more experience at the Boston Marathon than anybody I know. Um, share with the listener, uh, Scott, if you will, uh, some pearls of wisdom. Uh, what are, what are, what are some things you've learned over the years, uh, about the Boston marathon that if a first time, if a first timer came up to you and said, uh, uh, Mr. Graham, uh, I'm going to be running the Boston marathon this April, my first time, uh, I know you've run it 36 consecutive years. What do I need to know? What are you Scott, um, sharing with a first time Boston marathoner? Go out as slow as you possibly can. <laughs> Do not get pulled into someone else's race. Um, the first 10 miles should feel like a jog to you. Something that you say, you know, you would think it's ridiculously slow. If you if you think you're going to run a, um, you know, a, let's say a four-hour marathon, you should be going out at a speed that probably feels like a five-hour marathon. Um, just take it easy. There's no, there's no reason to go out hard. Um, save yourself. Cause as, as we've discussed, um, you're going to end up running some hills and those hills will tear you apart. And even the downhills, especially at the start, that steep downhill right away. I mean, you could do damage to yourself immediately there. Um, and what thing people don't realize is when you first start working out or, you know, running a race, your heart rate will jump and it'll jump to, let's say it jumps up to, you know, let's say 180 right away. Guess what? You're stuck at that rate for the whole race. You know, you're better off having it jump to 150 and keeping it there than that 180 pace because 180 is going to really hurt, you know, you know, 16 plus miles into the race. You're better off at a lower heart rate. And as you know, it's just, it's better for you in the long run. Um, yeah. And people, of course, heartbreak Hill, uh, gets, gets all of the publicity. Um, um, uh, but the reality is, um, the, um, the hilly part of the course starts before that. Um, so what, what, what can a first timer, um, expect, um, uh, outside of heartbreak Hill, of course, again, which, which gets all the publicity, but, um, Folks shouldn't be lulled into uh, a false sense of security that the only hill is Heartbreak Hill, right? Right, because the course is um, it's a roller coaster. It it really goes um, uh, all over the place. You know, you, you start off downhill, but it does these undulating things all through the course, and nothing serious. It just you know body blows, and it just wears on you. And, um, you know, you're, you're coming down um, mile 15 and a half, like we discussed earlier, down the Wellesley Hill. And people get, uh, once again, get all fired up going, let's fly down this hill. Worst thing you can do, because at mile 16, you're going to start really getting the hills again. And it's going to just blow you apart. You know, you, you want to feel strong at mile 16. If you feel strong at 16, you're going to be good to go, because none of the hills are all that hard given, you know, them themselves. I mean, Heartbreak Hill is probably a half mile long. So if you're in good shape, three, four minutes, that's all it is. It's not too bad. 
but it's a very bad point in the course. Mm, right. Well, and it's always, it's always a matter of it's a, um, uh, there's the sort of uh, accumulated effect of, right. to your point, you know, the, the first, the first 10 K plus that's downhill. If you've gone out too hard, the rolling undulating Hills, particularly the downhills, if you're letting it fly early on going downhill, all of those things accumulate. Right. Um, it's such that by the time you get to heartbreak Hill, what would ordinarily on a training run be no big deal, uh, is, is, is sometimes it feels like Mount Everest at that oh, point. Oh yeah. I mean, I've run, they used to have a race called the heartbreak Hill road race. It was a 10 K and it was the first time I had ran that Hill. And I remember running it going, what the heck's the big deal? I don't get it. <laughs> I hadn't run a marathon at that point. <laughs> yeah, and, right. And specifically you hadn't run the Boston marathon before. Right. So, um, all right. So as a, as a first timer, uh, how do I know, um, that a, that a finish is in the bag? Uh, is it when I see the Sitco sign? Yeah, I would say that's pretty much, I mean, you, you, you've gone that far. You're seeing the Sitco sign probably around mile 22, 23 timeframe. So you can see it from quite a ways out. Um, and you just, you, nothing's, nothing's a guarantee. I've seen people pass out a hundred yards from the finish line. I had a friend who personally, he was running a 220 and he passed out when he turned on to Boylston street. Wow. His body just shut down. Dave Dunham has never not finished, but he's ended up in the hospital. I mean, so you know, it, it, it's never a given you've got to get all the way to the finish line. And yeah. it's, and there's certain areas of the course. It's kind of funny. Um, what is it? Coolidge Corner. Um, there's a bunch of train tracks you got to run over. Those train tracks are are deadly because you're changing your stride. And all of a sudden you're changing your stride. Cramping happens real fast. It sneaks up on you like, what, what, what just happened to me? How come I, you know, my legs are all locking up here. And it's just, you got to be careful. Even in Framingham, there's some train tracks you got to cross. And yeah. you got to make sure you're not changing your stride. Yeah, it's interesting, right? Because uh, Boston is a really old city, um, yeah. and uh, um, you know, while 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 it's obvious, it's obvious that it, it's a road race. Um, these are these are on some these are on some some fairly old roads, which you know, which include train tracks that you have to, that you have to negotiate. Um, okay. So as a first time finisher, um, you know, I, I crossed the finish line. They, they put the metal around my neck. Uh, they, they, they put the baked potato wrapper on me. Um, what am I doing? Uh, or what should I be doing as soon as I cross the finish line? What have you learned over the years? Um, uh, what, 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 what is your, uh, what's your procedure? What's your protocol? What, what would you advise a first timer do when they finish the Boston Marathon? Um, get your picture taken. They have a marathon photo in there. Get get that. Grab the salty snacks they have. Get some water. Um, resist the urge to take a medical chair. <laughs> you know, one of the wheelchairs. I mean, personally, um, you know, just absorb what you've accomplished. Um, you know, one thing you should do too before you hit the finish line, listen. Listen for your name being called because they're actually calling them out. There's a lot of times they set up um, the uh, readers out on the street, sometimes on the far left-hand side. Go and run across that, you know, one reader that's, you know, 50 yards from the finish line. So you hear your name called out. So these, these are little tricks and tips. Um, 
when I usually finish, I do all those things, get my picture taken. I usually don't grab the snacks anymore because Greater Lowell always has all that at the thing. My, my thing is I try and get out of there as quickly as possible. Um, I try not to stop running. I try to keep moving because uh, as soon as you stop moving, you're going to lock up um, more than likely. Um, so I, I, I hustle out and get out now. There's also one other key thing. Um, they have you do a drop bag or you can do a drop bag uh, before you get on the buses early in the morning. Um, so you got clothes to wear. Um, I never do that because I found that, well, first of all, all I need to do is get to the Park Plaza Hotel. Great. But um, sometimes those buses back up where there's a line to get your drop bag. So not only are you you're cold and you know, what you're, you're waiting 15 minutes to get your drop bag. Now, it might not be that long. You may be one of the early finishers and you're able to get your bag and get out of there quick. That's great. But, you know, if you're back in the hordes, it may take you a while to get that drop bag. And there's a lot of people in the finish area. Um, if you can have somebody meet you at the family meeting area with your clothes, because you can get out of there quickly, get to the family meeting uh, area on uh, St. James Street, uh, right down by Arlington Street get your clothes and get out of that area quickly. Um, or if you have a hotel in the area, don't bother with the drop bag, just go straight to your hotel, yeah. you know, avoid that. Cause it's a, it can be tough. Yeah. Um, I mean, those are, uh, th those are amazing, uh, pieces of advice. Um, well, let, let, let's finish, uh, let's finish today with a, uh, a, a, a part of the program I like to call three random questions. Okay. Right. Now these oh. are now I I provided you with some questions in advance of the show just mm -hmm. to give you an idea of some of the things that I was going to be asking you, but I did not provide you with the, with the next three questions. No, Can no, you, you confirm didn't. that? Yeah, I will yeah. confirm it. This, <laughs> this is, now you got me nervous. <laughs> okay, nothing to be nervous about. This is this is one of my favorite parts uh, of of the program. Okay, so three random questions for Scott Graham. Scott, here we go. Random question number one. Um, how did the nickname fat, P-H-A-T, pain, heavy at times, originate? Um, it was a group of friends I have, uh, Joe Carner, Keith Spinney, and Ken Rousseau. We used to all run together a lot, and uh, we all belonged to different clubs and stuff, but we worked together. And uh, it was just it was just a group thing where, what's the forecast for today's run? Pain, heavy at times, and I just took it on sometimes as my, my thing. Cause it was just, especially when it came to snowshoe running, that was always the forecast. <laughs> well, I, I will, I will add um, that, that not only snowshoe running, um, but the Mount Washington road race for you as well. Your, your blog that I uh, alluded to earlier, run Scotty run, I think was run the, Scotty G run. Yeah. Run Scotty G run that, that was the blog that you maintained for a number of years. The, uh, the photo on that blog with the nickname P H A T pain heavy at times is you in a white acidotic racing singlet. And I, I believe that photo is from a Mount Washington road race and the expression on your face epitomizes the nickname pain heavy at times. Do you remember that day? Oh, sure do. That was a Scott Mason photo. Nonetheless. <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I remember that day. Well, those three guys I mentioned, uh, they were in that race and we, we had a, you know, 
internal bets and stuff as to who was going to win. And, you know, some of them had taken off fast and I, I was in good shape back then. That was probably 2010, 2011 race. And I had just come off uh, Ironman training. So uh, yeah, I remember that race like it was yesterday. It's just, that was the five mile section where it was used to be dirt. And I remember seeing Scott up there and I was just in so much pain. It just, you know, as you know, you know, nobody runs that whole race. It's rare that anybody runs every step of the race. And it's just, it just tears you apart. It, it, it's the race that hurts the most, but you recover within minutes. <laughs> it's it's so true. Right. Uh, yeah. Un, unlike, unlike your first Boston Marathon experience in which you had to take several days off from work following it, the Mount Washington Road Race, you know, 7.7 miles up the up the auto road to the summit of Mount Washington. Um, you know, only one hill, as as they describe. Um, because it is just an uphill race. Um, literally the next day you could go out, you could go out and go for a run. Like, I, like virtually, virtually no soreness. It's funny that you, that you mentioned that, um, that virtually nobody runs the entire thing. Of course, you know, we, we both know that the, probably the top 10, top 15 men and women run every step, um, of that 7.7 mile auto road. Um, um, my one and only claim to fame, if I, if, 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 if it's even a claim to fame, is that um, uh, uh, the the first year uh, that I that I ran the Mount Washington Road Race? Um, I ran every step of the race. Now I didn't run it fast, but I didn't walk. Now the reason the reason I didn't walk was because I had learned a month or two earlier when I found out I got into the race and and had the discussion with my dad, who had also run the race, but back in the 1970s. And my dad, of course. Uh, had to tell me what the what the family record was at the Mount Washington Road Race, and of course he also mentioned that um, uh, that uh, he ran most of it. You know, he said he had to walk some of it. Um, so of course I was inspired to run the entirety of the Mount Washington Auto Road um, simply to uh, outdo uh, my old man. Well, um, random question number two uh, is uh, uh, I, I think is, is is going to be a, a fun one for you to answer. Um, I know because I, I follow you on social media um, that you have a, a fairly sophisticated recovery protocol um for 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 you know for these long arduous events that you do um and you know it's a it's a recovery protocol that i i admire uh, even though uh i don't follow myself um but uh, but it and and clearly it seems to work for you so my random question uh number 2 for you is um uh, uh, what's your go-to flavor of ice cream uh, following a long, long, arduous race? <laughs> Mocha chip. <laughs> okay, um, okay. So tell the listener the story of of what 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 is it about ice cream that's like your it's it it's uh it's your it it is your it's your secret weapon, so to speak. Yeah, it's my my guilty pleasure. Um, you know. The, uh, years ago, I used to buy it in the uh, ice cream in three-gallon containers from a local ice cream stand, uh, um, Sully's in Chumsford and Sullivan Farm now in uh, Tingsboro. But uh, the the owners of those places, uh, Ricky and Bob Sullivan, are runners too, so they would sell it to me for a very, you know, a good price. We'll just say, and I'd go through a three gallon bucket of ice cream every week, <laughs> just me. And so I just, 
that's my guilty pleasure. I don't, you know, drink alcohol. I don't, uh, you know, I don't smoke. Um, that, that's my guilty pleasure. And that's, it, it works for me. <laughs> oh, clearly, clearly it's worked for you. All right. So quick follow-up question. Um, uh, you do summer, um, I, I believe, in the Lakes region of New Hampshire. Um, and uh, uh, I, I don't know if you, if you know this or not, but at one point, the state of New Hampshire um, per capita had the highest ice cream consumption rate in the United States. So, sure. so here in New Hampshire, ice cream is a thing for us. Um, and of course, summertime, well, I mean, any time is a good time to have a bowl of ice cream, right? But the summertime typically is associated with ice cream. Uh, you spend the summers in the Lakes region of New Hampshire. Uh, where's your go-to ice cream place uh, in the summertime? Yeah, uh, Papa Beans is the name of the place. It's on Wing Road in Sandwich. Um, it's actually out of a maple um, uh, place the, where they make maple syrup. Um, this woman, um, Ashley Bennis, is a friend of mine. In fact, I was running up uh, Bald Knob yesterday with her, with our dogs. And uh, she makes homemade ice cream. Her father used to make ice cream for uh, sale, too. And so... That's where that's where I get a lot of my ice cream these days. Uh, you know, I like the family-owned type places, and uh, you know, I sure I buy some grocery store stuff every now and then, but I, I like the more intimate uh, places where you get specialized flavors, and you know they're using a higher fat content cream and everything else. Yeah. So, uh, so for the listener, Sandwich, New Hampshire, um, is, uh, um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's a little bit out of the way, uh, <laughs> right. To, 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 to say the least, um, it's kind of tucked into, uh, almost smack dab middle of the state of New Hampshire. And you gotta, like, you, you, you gotta purposefully be going there in order oh, yeah. to get there. Um, but, um, but, uh, but that ice cream shop, Papa Bean, yeah, uh, is uh, it, it? It's a New Hampshire. Um, it's a New Hampshire icon. Um, it is. Um, you know, I, I mean, there there very well may be a handful of reasons to go to Sandwich, New Hampshire. But on the top of that list is that ice cream shop. So, yeah. uh, so for any listener um, that ever finds themselves in the state of New Hampshire uh, in the summertime, in particular, make a trip to Sandwich, New Hampshire. Um, uh, of, of anyone that's ever been there, nobody ever leaves disappointed. Safe to say? Oh, absolutely. And they, I mean, it's, it's one of those places to, it's an honor system deal where you go in and you leave cash or you Venmo the people. And it's just, you know, it's, it's just nice that, you know, people do that and it's, it's a great place. Um, Okay, last last random question. Um, always one of my 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 favorite questions to ask. Um, so Scott, you're hosting. Uh, you're going to host a group run, and you can invite three VIPs. Now, assume that all VIPs are runners, even if you know them to be runners or not. Okay. Uh, now, these guests may be known to you, or they may be people that you've never met. They can be real people or they can be fictional like cartoon characters or movie characters or characters from a book. They can be from the present or they can be from any time in the, in the past or future. They can even be you from the past or future. Scott, who are your three special guests? 
Okay. Uh, Emilio Zotepec. Emilio Zotepec. Okay. So uh, he was a he was a a runner from the 1920s, 1930s. Uh, yeah, 30s, 40s time frame. He um, he won the Olympic uh, 5,000, 10,000, and marathon in one Olympic games. It was the first marathon he had ever run. Um, and he, uh, he basically quit running when Russia took over his country and said he would never run for the Russians because they, they were offering him a cushy thing and he ended up working in the mines instead. So he, he would be definitely one person cause he, he basically trained in the winter months and trained in army boots and, you know, carried his wife on his back and, he had all kinds of, he had some great things he was talking about. I, you know, reading some of his story, um, he'd do a lot of hundred yard dash type things, you know, almost like the Bata workouts and people ask him, but you're training to run long. Why are you, why are you doing that? He says, well, I already know how to run slow. He says, I'm trying to train myself to run fast here. Awesome. So he was, and they say he was a very social character, uh, which, you know, us running people are, are tend to be very social because you're always with other people and stuff. And that, that's what kind of drives a lot of us. So he'd be number one on my list. Number two, um, you know, I, I just like some people's personalities and, you know, you just had this woman on and you're releasing the podcast today is Kara. Kara is just such a wonderful person. Kara Haas, um, such a nice person, always positive. Um, you know, running goes in her family. Her dad, uh, Rich, Richard was a runner and still does run. So, uh, there, she's always a lot of fun to run with. Um, lastly, let's see, I've run with a lot of the, you know, really good people, but, um, oh, you know, I, I, Rogers comes to mind or Joan Benoit or, yeah, maybe pre. Steve Prefontaine would be a, a, an interesting character to run with because he had a, you know, bad boy type attitude. So it, I'm kind of ranging. The three people are totally different in, in how they did things and what they were. But that'd be an interesting group of people to run with. Um, that would be uh, that would be a really popular group run to be invited to, right? If if you if, if you put it out there on Facebook that uh, that you're hosting a group run, uh, uh, you know, up in the Lakes region of New Hampshire, and uh, these are your three uh, special guests, um, phenomenal, um, Scotty. Thank you so much for sharing your story. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Chris. And we got to get together again sometime soon to go for a run. Let's, let's absolutely do that. Thanks again, Scott. All right. Thank you. Well, after 36 years of doing anything, you, you know that there would be some great stories to tell. Can you, can you imagine running 100 plus laps on a track? Well, without a doubt, the marathon distance commands a great deal of respect. But Scott's experience teaches us that anyone can do it with three important elements in place. Desire, a training plan, and a support system, including family, friends, and a local running club. Well, once again, you've been listening to the Eat Half Walk Double podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, please circle back to the homepage and click the follow or subscribe button 
to stay up to date with all the new content. And of course, if you really enjoyed the show, please consider sharing it with your friends. I'll be posting some supporting media on my Twitter account at Coach Chris J. Dunn and the show's Facebook page at Eat Half, Walk Double. So make sure to check that out. And lastly, remember, the secret to living well and longer is to eat half, walk double, laugh triple, and love without measure. Until next time.